Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to begin our discussion of the crisis in America's K-12 education system. Is this the beginning of the end? Are we about to witness the fall of the USA as a superpower? In a study conducted in 2012 by the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, it was found that, and I quote, U.S. teens lag in global education rankings as Asian countries rise to the top. If they are rising, we must be falling. Today, I have two distinguished guests who will share their perspective on why America's education system is where it is. In the meantime, I'd like to share something that I was emailed today from ASCD. ASCD is the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. And in this email, they showed things that were going out in 2014, excuse me, things that are coming in in 2014 in the world of education and things that are going to be out in 2014. And they start with, first and foremost, college and career ready standards are in. Common Core is out. I, of course, disagree with the idea that Common Core is out. In fact, in a recent letter from Commissioner King from the State Education Department, I will quote one of his paragraphs. We know that moving forward with the Common Core is essential. Study after study shows that our students lag behind in, in the knowledge and skills required for their future. The Common Core standards designed by teachers and education ex experts from across the country and shaped by many New York State educators will help us to do better. So, folks, without a doubt, the Common Core is not leaving us. I believe what has happened is that many people believe that the Common Core is the reason behind so much testing of our students. And that is, in fact, not the case. The Common Core was developed in response to the fact that the United States, which which had routinely been among the tops in, in the world in education, has slipped to the point where we're barely holding on to the top 20 spots. And in response to that, it was found that having standards uh, that were different in every state and in different communities within, within every state didn't give us a competitive uh, advantage or didn't give our students a competitive option when they went into the workforce. And of course, the workforce now is global. You're not simply competing with the child next to you. Uh, therefore, in response to that, for years now, the development of the Common Core came about so that grade by grade, we are pre preparing our students to be college and career ready. So these standards are not necessarily a negative, and they certainly weren't the uh, motivation behind the testing. In fact, the testing began more than 30 years ago when there was a study by the commission, by a commission of the Reagan administration, that's President Ronald Reagan, 
And that commission came out with a report titled A Nation at Risk. And in that report, it stated that among the things that were recommended was that states develop assessments to for for key transition points and students education to determine where they lie uh in their schooling. So this was the motivation behind the start of so much testing. Now, what the federal government does, it doesn't mandate uh anything. The states are in charge. However, there is a lot of money that comes from the federal government, Title I funding. And, of course, they can always stipulate that if you're not doing X, Y, Z, you will not receive the funding. So although they don't mandate it and all those states retain their their control, states need this federal money. So ultimately, they end up having to do exactly what is recommended by the federal government. Now, I'm going to share some more uh, of the items that are in and the items that are out in education uh, this year, according to this email I received from ASCD. Tablets are in. Textbooks are out. I agree wholeheartedly. We are in a visual, virtual, digital world. You can place on a tablet hundreds and hundreds of textbooks. Okay. I was just informed, by the way, that my guests... Todney Harris is now available, so let's go directly to him. Todney, welcome to the show once again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Todney, first, tell us about yourself and why knowing your background should motivate us to read your book. Okay, well, you know, that's a very interesting point. You know, first of all, my name is Todney Harris. I've been in the field of education for over 18 years. And, you know, I've been mostly uh, spent my time at the middle level, and I spent a few brief years, you know, at the high school level. But, you know, regardless of that, you know, the majority of what we have to deal with, you know, as far as our curriculum and instruction is concerned, is primarily the same. You know, it's just adapted to the, you know, the, the students, you know, who are in front of you. And, um, you know, right now, as I was listening to your comments earlier about the Title I funding and the federal mandates, and I just have to say, that those comments were 100 100% accurate. You know everything that the states, which in turn trickles down to the districts, and then in turn trickles down to the schools, all revolve around you know our responsibilities and this level and this measure of accountability. And you know furthermore, you know if you're talking about you know Common Core and these new requirements. There's no negative to that at all. You know, people are, are only going to view it as such because it's brand new. And when something's brand new, you have to work harder. You know, you can't use the same old lesson plans and the same old strategies and the same old reproducibles that you've been used for the, like the last 20 years. You have Absolutely. to actually put some, you actually have to put some thought and some work into what you're doing. And then again, you have to become a learner again because you have to adapt to the new mandates, the new strategies. So that's what that's what I like about you know education right now, because it motiv- it's, vo- it's motivating me to change, to be different, you know, to adapt, to do new things, try new things, not be afraid of failure. But the, but the main point, or how it connects to my book, is that I'm talking about what's going on in the educational system right now. I'm talking about things that parents and, and, and teachers can do together to make the student experience more successful. You know, people people really, they need to really go back to 
the reason why education was created in the first place. Okay, because if we're talking about education, we're talking about our philosophy of capitalism. They are intertwined. They go hand in hand. They are they are connected. Because you know that in order for anybody to to achieve that American dream, that middle level status, you know, in this country, they have to go through the system. You know, they have to go through primary, secondary. Then they have to get to a college or university to get that white collar job that they all been talking about and dreaming about since they were little kids. You know, maybe you know they're they're maybe a third or fourth or fifth generation immigrants, and they've seen their parents struggle, you know, work hard all their lives, and they want better, and they want better. So no matter what, no matter what we say, no matter what we think, upward mobility is dependent upon understanding how our economic philosophy works in this country. Because the federal government is involved, these businesses are involved, and again, now it's a whole new arena because everything now is global. It's all skill-based. The competition has increased, the stress levels increased, and accountability has increased on all sides. And, you know, and I don't, and I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, when people have negative opinions about, you know, the profession, about the teachers in general, I don't necessarily think, you know, that's correct because they don't have, they're not really seeing or, or experiencing everything that we have to adapt and change to as far as these, these 21st century skills you know, uh, our concern. You know, my book is talking about how education, <clears throat> excuse me, revolves around the economic philosophy of capitalism. You know, from a or from an origin standpoint to why it was created. You know, and in in the effects, the testing, mm-hmm. the testing, the outside perception. You know, the made the federal mandates, and uh, and of course, if, we, and if we're talking about our capitalistic system, then we have to understand what the, what the, what the, the class system is. We have to understand how, you know, our economic standing affects students' ability to function in these classroom environments. It plays a huge role. Okay. Now, let me just remind our, our listeners that the title of the book is Battlegrounds, America's War in Education and Finance, A View from the Front Lines. Now, Tanya, you had mentioned that from the very beginning uh, now, when you say beginning, are you talking about schoolhouses that settlers were in, or, or are you re- referring to the Industrial Revolution um, and the fact that schools were structured around uh, factories and, and such? I'm talking about that at the advent of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Because remember, oh, when those immigrants were coming in, they had to be socialized. You know, school, one of the main functions of schools during the early stages was to socialize. You know, read the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, teach them English. You know, teach them, you know, the American values. You know, teach them how to assimilate and work in, in these factories. You know, teach them how to, so they can be able to go into these factories and perform that labor that, there was, that was needed at that point in time. Because it was all about the need, the necessity, to the fulfillment of these corporate bosses for labor. And if they couldn't speak the language or didn't have the American values or didn't have, you know, the, the American system or the way of life, then it was going to be harder for them to come in, you know, and perform. Yeah. You know, that's, and then also don't forget, that's why the tax base, you know, was established to make it free, you know, to, to use the community resources as a means to fund, you know, to fund the schools, to fund the systems. You know, that's the, that's the original intent and purpose of education, you know, in this country. That's how it all, that was the primary impetus for the creation of it. 
Now, do you think during the Industrial Revolution that that part of the motivation behind schooling was to so that uh, children were not competing in the workforce, especially in the factories with their parents? Of course. And also, you have to keep in mind that there were some jobs that need a higher skill, a higher skill set. So they had to train people to do that. You know, if you if you if you look at the the bare bones of it all, we have two. We've always had two classes in the country. We always had the labor class or the worker, and you've always had the elite or the cat or the owner or the owner of, of or captain of industry. They've always dictated, you know, how to you know they've always dictated the performance, you know, of the labor. They've always dictated how they live. Like, the, like for example, communities, all the communities that were created, you know, the the the, the schools, the schools, the the, the 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 overall structure. Well, think about it. Who funded it? Who had the money and the and the wherewithal to put these people in these situations? It was the people who were making money from you know their inventions, you know, from their factories, mm-hmm. the Carnegie, the Carnegies, and the Rockefellers, you know, just to name two of the more famous names, you know, from that time period. Okay. You know, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Tane, we're going to, to get further into this, but I do want to uh, take a short break. Uh, but to our listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back with more uh, right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Todney Harris. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-GO-FOR-IT, 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Todney, if I were to walk into a school building, a public school building, what would I see that would, 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 would trigger me to, to be able to identify the fact that schools are structured after a capitalistic system? Well, just look at, well, the first, the first indicator would be how students are undressed. You know, how, you know, how they are carrying themselves. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, you know, how these students, you know, dress, you know, their clothes, you know, that's a status symbol, so to speak. And it's a lot, it plays a large part in their social behavior, you know, their social roles. You know, the kids who aren't wearing the Timberlands and the Polos and the Nauticas, you know, the most famous, you know, name brands of, of shoes and boots and clothing, so to speak, you know, they get ridiculed. You know, it, the behavior can oftentimes result in being, the students being ostracized and or bullying. And, I mean, I've witnessed that, you know, for a number of years. Um, if you look at, again, belongings, uh, coats of, you know, devices, you know, some of these kids don't have the electron devices that some of the other children have. And, you know, they don't, they feel as if, you know, they're not a part of the the culture because they don't have these tools or, or, or material that, you know, everybody else has. And a large part of it is the fact that some of these parents, you know, just can't afford it. You know, they just can't give these kids, you know, what society claims that they need to have, you know, these so these quote unquote status symbols. So that's that's pretty much the first indicator, you know, if you um if you observe it enough to to understand and, and realize that. Okay. So uh, having mentioned that indicator, uh, would a possible solution be school uniforms? Correct. And, and we've been, 
trying to transition to school uniforms in my current environment now. You know, we, we're making an option. We haven't made a mandate, but many of the schools, you know, in our district have done that. And I feel that, you know, the school uniform will alleviate a great deal of pressure, you know, on these parents and these students, you know, to have these these status symbols. I mean, I think that would be, you know, that's that's a great solution to ending some of that social stigma that these kids are, are, are being, you know, exposed to because of they don't, you know, have these materials. Now, do you believe if, if I walked into a school, if I can go back in a time machine, if I walked in a, into a school in 1920, do you believe I would still see uh, elements of that? Sure. Look at, if you if you want proof of that, all you have to do is go to the Library of Congress and do your research on uh, Jim Crow. You know, in this, remember, schools weren't really diverse until after 1974 when Lyndon Johnson had that Civil Rights Act passed that uh, Kennedy had started before his assassination. You had, you know, African-American people were being educated in shacks, you know, one room, you know, one room locations, you know, hand-me-downs, uh, poor texts, you know, poor materials, poor resources. You know, parents back then did what they had to do to make sure that the kids who had the opportunity received the proper education. You know, and then when the schools got better, you know, when Plessy versus Ferguson decision was hand, handed down and you had a separated but equal doctrine and you had uh, African-American schools and you had, you know, Caucasian schools, the, the resources were still less than adequate. Because if you really look at it, that was the whole basis for Brown versus Board of Education decision to be handed down in '54 to begin with, because of the the stigma or the social inequity that these African American uh, students in general were feeling due to you know the the, the uh, separation of concept or principle. Okay. Now, do you believe there are there are systems uh, of education, whether in the United States or outside of the United States, that are not based on capitalism? And if so, do you think there are those that are successful? Well, I've heard that comment. I've heard that question, you know, before, and I and I talk about that in the book a little bit. You know, let, let me use China, you know, as an example. China has always been a heterogeneous society. You know, everyone wonders why the Asian the Asian cultures do so well in their education. Because if you look at it, they don't really their structure isn't all that different entirely from what we do. Aside from the longer school days, you know, the nuances are very slight. But you know, they they've never had to deal with immigration. They never had to deal with racism. They never had to deal with classism. They never had to deal with integration, assimilation. They've all their culture has always been steady for a number of years. Even back during and remember, their dynasties, their their history, it was always it was always cynical, it was always based on structure. And they were pretty much isolated from the rest of the world due to the, the you know, a geographic demographic. So they mm-hmm. never had to deal with, you know, blending all of these cultures and and, and people that we've had had to deal with here over in America. So mm-hmm. we it's, it's a different paradigm. You know, it's a different dynamic. So, you know, we've we've had some issues, some social issues and some economic issues in this country to deal with that's affected that. You know, that's that's altered that may that has had a large impact on how we deal with it. Okay. Um now before we run out of time uh, who do you want to read your book? Like, who, what is your target market? Well, to be perfectly honest, I think every parent 
who was able to get their hands on this book should have it in their library. They should definitely, you know, access it. Because what I'm offering and what I'm talking about doesn't cost any money. Like, for example, let me just focus on one part of the book in part one. I've got a chapter that's, in, that's, that's stated, Preconceived Notions, Parents and Teachers, page 13. That is probably the most important chapter in this book. You know, we have to work together. You know, aside from talking about the economic factors in our country, population growth, race and education, you know, diversity, whiteness, it's all about the parents. They have to be accountable like we do. You can't just say, hey, all right, I'm going to send my son, my send my daughter to school, and I'll let the adults in the, the school district deal primarily with their learning. That's not That's not effective. Everything that we do has to be reinforced. You know, think about it. We just had this long Christmas vacation, right? 18 days. Yes. You mix you mix in a few snow days. I've never had a vacation this of this of tenure ever. This is the, like the longest that I can remember in years past. But I did a quick poll. I said, how many of you were reading, doing your math, little homework, this and that and the other during the entire 18 days? And I have 58 graders. And I only had maybe, I have seven students tell me that they were still keeping their academic material going during the, during the entire break. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, what does that say? You know, what does that say? Okay, what do you get for Christmas? Well, I got all this stuff, but no one said anything about a book. No one said anything about anything educational. No one said any, that they received anything that can help them do better, you know, in school. You know, parents, it's not about what you buy. You can't buy kids. You know, I'm happy you want them to look good, but support what they're doing. Support these projects. Support these. You know, support the work. Really do the homework. Check check on what's going. You know, it's it's not about oh you are at school you're fine. Whatever you need to do, they'll take care of it there. No, no, that's not parent accountability is just as equally as important as teacher accountability. We got to do this thing together. If we go hand in hand, if one part, if one part falters, the whole thing is going to struggle, and that's just the truth. Yeah, and and I agree. Do you do you include uh, suggestions? For example, uh, if I'm a parent and I'm reading this book, and you know, I, I say, hey, the holidays are coming. What should I get my child? Uh, do you include suggestions as far as you know, purchasing books of interest or things of that nature? I do, and also I also talk about how to make, how to make sure that these kids are have the access to colleges in their communities. You know, because if you think about it, you know, again, I'll use the city of Hartford as, as an example. And we have Trinity colleges in the middle of um, you know, the urbanized part of the community. You know, and it's like a, a fortress. You know, gates and wrought iron fences and, and security. But think about it: how many people who live in that community are going to have access to that university? How many students that we, you know future college-educated people that we have living in that community can actually say, I can afford and go to that college and have access to it. You know, that's the goal. That's the key. That's what I'm talking about. It starts from day one. Put a, get a plan together and make sure that these kids have access to the community, to the colleges in their community. And even if they don't want to stay in state, I'm not, I'm not trying to make people say, hey, you got to stay in Connecticut, in Philadelphia. No. But at least give these kids a little help, you know, financially with some kind of money management plan, savings plan or something to make sure that they can get there. You know, give them the tools 
necessary to do better. You know, do you should want your children to have access and do better than what you had. You know, be greater. You know, I'm talking about those issues in the book. I'm talking about how they should be responding to educators in the hostility, how to handle themselves in certain situations. Because believe it or not, race is a huge issue in, in any organization, especially education. Because if you look at the history of this country, upward mobility is dependent upon education. And if you falter in this system, if you fall into the pitfalls, if you're not aware High school dropouts will and do occur, and it will continue. I'm talking about things that are happening now that we can fix without any money being spent. Just time. Yes. Now, you mentioned uh, race being a factor. Uh, uh, Let me challenge you with this question. Uh, Do you think uh, expectations is tied to race? Of course. Okay. You can't. You can't. Of course. Okay. Now, if if uh, does it matter what color the teacher is, uh, or is it more important what the expectations of that teacher is? Okay. Well, let me say, let me answer that question carefully, because I don't I don't want to raise any ire. But now, personally, I feel that we should have more Hispanic and African American teachers in these classrooms. That's a personal feeling, you know, that I have. I don't have anything against, you know, people who have the calling and want to come in the classroom and help people help these children. That's fine. Okay, that's it's admirable because we're not in this for the money. Because I know that anyone who's teaching in the classroom, they're not in it for the money because we don't get paid a lot. So I give them respect, you know, on that level. But I also know that, you know, we we will be able to get these African-American males, these Hispanic males to respond more you know, be more respectful, be more involved if they had someone of their likeness standing in front of them. It's a kinship. It's kinship. It's a respect. It's just, you know, it's just certain things that when you're African-American or Hispanic, there's just certain, you know, levels that we can reach that a Caucasian female can't. And, I'm, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, draw ire or, or what have you because, in fact, some of them are quite good. I've seen various teaching styles from various people, you know, over the years. But it just occurs to me that, you know, these classrooms are becoming more and more urban, more and more African-American people, more and more Hispanic people. They need members from their own likeness, their own culture standing before them. That's just a personal opinion. Okay. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a opinion that many people hold. Uh, I will share that I observed a, a, a health class today and it was 100% uh, African American Latino children. And it, it was one of the best teachers and most, uh, uh, rich, uh, classes and, and engagement. And it was, it was just a powerful lesson by a, a very powerful teacher. And he's somebody who, clearly loves what he does and he he shares that passion with the children and uh he's uh he's white you know so i i believe expectations can trump uh um race um if somebody's truly passionate and loves what they do and they hold those expectations high that the children will 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 rise uh now let me go on to say uh we've been speaking with uh todney harris author of Battlegrounds, America's War in Education and Finance, A View Front Lines. Uh, this book is available online and in bookstores. Uh, visit visit his website, ToddneyHarris.com. Uh, Todney, thanks for yes, being, being on the show. 
Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity, and I hope that um I can hear more from you and learn from you, you know, in the future. You know, I really thank you for reaching out to me and giving me the opportunity to speak on your show. You're welcome, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Stay tuned, because in our next half hour, we'll be joined by a seasoned expert education leader, author, and consultant. 